Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're kicking off the new year on Weird House Cinema with two different firsts. This is our first full-length animated film, and this is our first Hungarian film. You know, we've done movies on Weird House Cinema before that I almost just purely enjoyed that, you know, I had pretty much nothing bad to say about. But this is probably the first movie we've done that is just purely beautiful in, in uh, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm forgetting a case. Have we done anything else really of this caliber? Yeah, oh, man, I'm not sure that we have. Uh, you know, one of the, the sort of frequent tropes that I find myself saying about movies that I think are really beautiful is that, well, you could take any one still from the film and you could put it on your wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and on one hand, that definitely applies to this movie, the movie we're talking about here today, Son of the White Mayor. But it, uh, it's also a little unfair to the film because it is a film as we'll discuss that is so, that has such movement in it, such pulsation, mm. such transformation that to make this moving picture stand still is to rob some of its vital essence. And I don't know that I've ever felt that about a movie before. I completely agree. Yeah. You cannot really capture the art style of this film with stills from the movie. You have to see it in movement. Yeah, because it is constantly moving. It is constantly pulsating and changing colors and changing forms and in just a way that I I have never seen before in uh certainly in an animated film but uh, you know in, in any motion picture. It this one really stands apart and yeah, I have I have trouble comparing it to virtually anything else and certainly to to anything else that we've we've covered on the show. I think I will be able to make some comparisons, but they're all going to be pretty superficial. Uh, this yeah. is one of the most unique movies I've ever seen. I mean, there are superficial links to other things, but as a whole package, I can't think of anything like it. Yeah. This. Uh, so again, this is uh, Marcel Yankovic's Son of the White Mare from 1981. I was not familiar with this artist or his work at all before uh, last month. Uh, but then a few different things sort of happened. So first of all, credit where credit's due, a listener by the name of A.V. wrote in and recommended the film, calling it, quote, a strange and strangely beautiful film. Uh, but then I have to admit, I kind of forgot about this recommendation, this strong recommendation during the sort of December madness that we always experience here on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I later found myself uh, needing some, uh, you know, hallucinogenic but non-disturbing visual stimuli to put on uh, in the house. And I noticed this film on a few different lists. And um, and I think I even mentioned it to you and, and possibly to Seth. And then I think you were the one who remembered AV bringing it up. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay, it's been recommended there as well. And so I, what I did is I then went to see if I could rent it at uh, the local Videodrome uh, rental store here in Atlanta. And uh, while this first attempt proved fruitless, uh, owner Matt Booth told me that it was, in fact, an incredible film and that it was in high demand of late uh, at the store, in part because the, the, the U.S. Blu-ray had just come out earlier that year. And it also uh, was during the summer that the director passed away. Uh, so, you know, a few different things sort of lining up that really kind of um, pushed this film uh, in front of, uh, of, of more eyes. And uh, so I wasn't able to rent it initially. I wound up watching the film on the Criterion channel. But then I went back and rented it from Videodrome just this last week and watched it again. Yeah, it's my understanding that this film really got 
almost no international audience at all upon its initial release that that this year now is the renaissance of this movie uh and that far more people uh had seen uh an earlier film by the same director by uh, Marcel Yankovic called Johnny Corncob that's the yeah. english translation it's a film it's an animated film adaptation of a hungarian uh epic poem from the 19th century that may have been based on some some older hungarian folk tales like this movie was uh but the the i think the hungarian title is janos vitesh but uh in english that's johnny corncob and i <laughs> i haven't seen that one yet but i i love the name yeah, uh, that one is, I believe, included as an extra on this yeah, uh, this recent Blu-ray release, um, which um, I'll reference again. But it's uh, uh, it it's comes from uh, Arbalos, and it uh, it's a it's a restored 4K version of the film uh, by original camera negative uh, from the uh, Hungarian National Film Institute Film Archive. So um, it's it's a really beautiful package, and uh, it has a number of extras uh, which we'll touch on as we uh, proceed. Now, uh, I, I don't know about, know about you, Joe, but I, uh, one of the things you know that I was thinking about, I was thinking about this in terms of just animation experiences of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I've certainly been wowed by animated films before, especially when I'm, I've been introduced to sort of a, a new genre or a new body of work or a new sort of you know national uh, or regional style of animation. Um, I remember Miyazaki's Nausicaa had that effect on me when I when I first watched it, mm-hmm. and uh, and I still that hold that up as one of my my just absolute favorite films. And I had a, a similar experience with the 1973 film Fantastic Planet, um, as well as 1981's Heavy Metal. Both of these were <laughs> films that sort of. Uh, at the time, anyway, sort of made me rethink what animation could do, you know, because you, you know, if you're exposed to Disney growing up, you're exposed to the cartoons that are on television, you you have a certain idea about what animation is, what a cartoon is. Oh, yeah. Well, so one of the extras on the, the Blu-ray of this that we watched is a long interview with uh, Marcel Yankovic, and he he talks a lot about his history with like the Pannonia Animation Studio in in Hungary, where uh, he he got his start. and And th- there's one part in the interview where he uh, he talks about uh, this problem that he experienced early in his career. He had been working at this place called Pannonia. We'll probably get into more detail about that later on, but uh, he'd been doing some sort of uh, animation. Uh, he wasn't like leading projects at the time. He'd just been sort of a you know a, a, an illustrator for hire at the studio. And uh, he said that uh, one of the pitfalls of animation, uh, quote, was that we always had to make the story either infantile or it had to be humorous. Mm -hmm. And then he says, aren't there other angles to this world? My greatest film experiences, and I'm not talking about animations, my greatest film experiences always happened after I left the cinema. And for many hours, I was still under the influence of the film. And in the case of a comedy, this never happens. And so he uses that as a as a point of inspiration, like that he he wanted to create something that was a little more uh, a, a little more subtle and a little more dangerous and a little uh, you know not just a a cartoon for babies or something for adults that was supposed to be funny, something that could have have a kind of mythic power or or, or touch on uh, deeper themes, something that might make you cry. Yeah, and I feel like that still seems to be kind of a struggle, at least in the public consciousness concerning animation, if only by virtue of of looking at uh, 
like what some of the main uh, you know fonts of animated material are, you know, and like some of the the networks and all, where it does seem that by and large you still have a whole bunch of animation for, for that's aimed at children, mm-hmm. and then you have this this other subset of animation that is, uh, you know, that's aimed at, um, at grownups and, and tends to have kind of like a, uh, you know, a, a bad boy style to it. Like it's, oh, it's, it's animation, but it's dirty. Oh, it's animation, but it has cuss words in it. Um, yeah, which, uh, uh, which mature feel, 30 minute comedies for TV, you know, based on the Simpsons model, they turn that into a million other shows. Yeah. Yeah. And, and generally, you know, drift towards, I, I feel like the, you know, the, the, the baser end of the spectrum there, you know, um, <laughs> Uh, but but yeah, this where's this uh, the, the mythic rail here? Uh, where's this uh, this other uh, line of thought in the, the public uh, conception and consumption of animation? And I think that's what Yankovic eventually ended up pursuing with uh, first uh, Johnny Corncob or Janusz Vitesz, uh, and uh, which again was an adaptation of a of a classic Hungarian poem, and then later with with the movie we're talking about today, Son of the White Mare. Which is a uh, is a gorgeous moving and which uh, I I don't want to suggest that it's overly serious because there are plenty of comedic elements in it, mm-hmm. um, but that uh, it, it is something that is is not just a throwaway comedy. It's not like these early uh, things that that he talks about working on, like the Gustav cartoons. I don't know if you looked any of those up, but I did not look at those. Well, the Gustav cartoons appear to me to be about a a man who like gets very angry at a at a rascally boy who's shooting a, a slingshot at him. <laughs> I'd say not on the same elevated level as Son of the White Mare. <laughs> uh, but wait, where did I get to? Oh yeah, but anyway, so so here what we end up with is is a is a very moving and powerful animated film that that approaches this genre that could have been called cartoons before as as a real project of art. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, um, uh, again, it, any description, even a screenshot doesn't really do it justice because it is this just hypnotic uh, affair that just resonates with mythic symbolism. Like you just, and I feel like sometimes I say things similar to that about other other <laughs> pictures, but but this one really does it. Like this, this picture seems to have like a visual language all its own where, um, in, in which I feel like you could turn the subtitles off. You could just... And uh, and being a non-Hungarian speaker, you could you could just let this film wash over you, and you would still get most of it. It would still speak a language that you understood, but but not just a simplistic one of sort of like archaic myth, uh, you know, formats and sort of you know you know hero's journey type of, of thing. But like it's speaking in some very rich symbols that uh, are sometimes sometimes more obvious and sometimes uh, seem a little bit more uh, esoteric. Oh yeah, and I, I love. I, th- I think I understand the juxtaposition you're talking about. I mean, one aspect of this movie is that it's like about as classic of a narrative as you could get. It's about like mm-hmm. a, a it's about a strong young hero who must go into the underworld to rescue princesses, right? Um, but but on the other hand, it's got like the the gnome with a beard as long as a hoe whose beard turns into a sword and just much weirder stuff like that. Yeah, and has uh, he has one eye and um, oh, yeah, it's oh it's it's one. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll get to that creature here in a bit. Uh, there are not a ton of creatures and, and entities in this this film, but every one of the the things that pops up, every one of the entities that pops up in the film is very memorable. Now, speaking of which, I guess uh, we should get to the elevator pitch here. Basically, we follow Hungarian hero Fanyuvo or Tree Shaker as he teams up with his two brothers and tries to defeat the three dragons of the underworld and save the three captive princesses. 
Now, if you think, well, I've seen a hero fight dragons before, hold mm-hmm. on a minute. <laughs> These are different than the dragons you know. You, you, this, is, this is not so conventional as, as scales, wings, the Smaug archetype. Right. They are all, oh, each one is drastically different from the other. They're, uh, they're shifting symbolic entities uh, that also have a certain, uh, certain comic nature to them as well without like overdoing it. Oh yeah, there was one thing I laughed at in the movie, which is the, the second dragon, which uh, is is sort of a an armored vehicle or a tank with many guns attached to it. Uh, it just arrives already shooting at everything, like before it even understands what the situation is. And I yeah. thought that was very funny. Yeah, they're. I mean, they're 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 monsters in the you know the, the sort of classic and uh, tropic sense. You know, they're all consuming and they're angry and they're. Um, they're they're ready to fight. Oh, that's another thing we should mention. There's a lot of wrestling in this movie. This is oh, essentially yeah. a wrestling movie. Even though- <laughs> oh yeah, this this is six degrees from El Santo. Yeah, yep. the uh, there are a lot of competitions in this movie where uh, two characters are in a are in a contest of strength, and what they do to fight one another is grab the other one and throw them into the ground. And how far into the ground you can plant them when you throw them is a sign of how strong you are. So uh, when, for example, Tree Shaker, our, our main hero, first meets up with one of his brothers, the Stone Crumbler, they have a wrestling match. And Stone Crumbler, I think he kind of throws Tree Shaker down to his ankles in the ground. But Tree Shaker you know, pulls his legs out of the mud and then grabs Stone Crumbler and just buries him up to the chin. <laughs> yeah. And the the maneuver here is, uh, it's great. Uh, I, I'm not criticizing it at all, but it is, it is unlike any wrestling hold you've seen. It is grabbing the other individual by the waist from the front, picking them up as if you might pick up a child. Yeah. And then, and then just shoving them down f- feet first into the earth, uh, often like literally into the earth, embedding them like a stake. So good. I never wanted it to end. I want a whole wrestling league where they just operate on that basis. <laughs> yeah, who needs all of uh, of uh, El Santo's moves when you've got this one? I mean, uh, it, it works for, for Tree Shaker. All right, well, let's go ahead and hear a little trailer audio uh, from the film. Um, I'm not, again, this is not going to really give you a full taste of what's coming, but I think you will get a taste of some of the audio, some of the, the music and sound design, uh, which, which is also noteworthy in this picture. Now, regarding the sound design in this movie, of course, it it has wonderful music, but uh, beyond that, I was also very impressed by the quality of the vocal performances, which uh, are again in Hungarian. So, uh, so I, I couldn't understand, you know, what they were saying. Of course, it's subtitled. 
but uh but the the voices they use like the cast has this very soothing timbre uh, that uh, that I I noticed while I was watching the movie, and then afterwards, when I watched the interview uh, with Marcel Yankovic, he actually talked about how the soothing quality of the vocal performances was absolutely on purpose because he was trying to recreate the quality of a parent telling a fairy tale to a child who's about to go to bed. And that mm-hmm. ties into his broader vision of what this movie is supposed to represent. Uh, uh, I guess to go ahead and say it, a lot of people have called this movie psychedelic and that is, uh, I can understand why people say that, but he sort of gently pushes back against that by saying, you know, people assume when they see all the, all the, the protean animations and the way that the forms of the characters and, and everything in the world is constantly changing, that this must assume, that people assume he must have taken, uh, I think he, at one point he calls it a quote, a magic substance. Uh, that, you know, he must have been on LSD or something like that. But he says, no, he says he's never taken any psychedelic drugs, that his vision for the art style of the movie was based on dreams. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, that, you know, dreams and psychedelic experience are not uh, are not unrelated uh, phenomena. Um, but uh, I, I, yeah, I guess that's, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm trying more to say hallucinogenic in describing it than than psychedelic because I know that uh, I, I'd also seen in an interview where he kind of uh, uh, pushed back against that terminology. However, if you are looking for a psychedelic film, uh, this will not disappoint. Well, I mean, I think you can understand it in the broader sense of psychedelic if you you go beyond uh, you know the the pharmacogenic psychedelics and just yeah. say psychedelic means manifestations of the mind. You know that uh, you're not just getting a a pure read on a realistic looking scene, but allowing your perceptions to be transformed constantly. Something that would be a byproduct of a lot of pharmacogenic uh, psychedelic experiences, but could also just be yeah a dream or you know you. you, you your your consciousness is altered in some way for some reason. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I often use the term in describing something that feels psychedelic uh, in its final form, uh, not so much about like what may or may not have been uh, uh, going around uh, in the you know the, the the brain or the blood vessels of the individuals that uh, created the film. Because certainly, just because you're using psychedelics does not mean that you're going to um, you know produce something of of quality. Um, <laughs> I mean, we've. I think we've we've covered a film or two on Weird House Cinema where there were at least some stories about how the uh, the director or the writer had uh, had been using psychedelics, and and the results are not always um, uh, top shelf. Let's just say. At any rate, I will say that in um, you know in, in psychedelic cinema and psychedelic literature and so forth and and, and the arts, yeah, there's often in a you know this tapping into this kind of protean energy, like you said, tapping into the mythic and uh, and uh, yeah, so it 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 does uh, seem that uh, Marcel Yankovic uh, you know, was tapping into to similar currents of consciousness and storytelling, uh, but again via dreams and via just a, a knowledge of mythology and folklore. He he was uh, you know deeply involved in the study of mythology and folklore throughout his life. Well, uh, I guess should we transition to to talking a bit about his life? Yeah, let's let's do so. Um, he was the director, the co-writer, and also has animator and layout uh, artist credits on this. Though to be clear, there was there were a number of animators that worked on the film. I've seen him described to foreign audiences as both the Hungarian Walt Disney and the Hungarian Miyazaki. I'm not I'm not sure what he he thought of those two uh, labels. 
It's like the Hungarian animation director that I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, he was an acclaimed and award-winning animator. Uh, he was a longtime figure at Hungary's Pannonia Film Studio, creating such uh, feature-length films as Johnny Corncob, which we already mentioned, uh, The Tragedy of Man, which I think was his last full-length work, as well as such acclaimed shorts as 1974's Sisyphus and 1977's The Struggle. Uh, both of these are included as extras on the Blu-ray for uh, Son of the White Mare. And they're both excellent. They're very different. Uh, they're, they're black and white. Um, you know, they, they lack that kind of pulsating color we find in this film. But they're, uh, they're also both very clever, and they also uh, take uh, certain mythological ideas and kind of twist them uh, though in, into interesting forms. Yeah. Did you watch both of these, Rob? I did, yes. Yeah, they're very good. So Sisyphus is, uh, I believe, done with grease pencil. And I think that Yankovic did that almost entirely by himself. I think he had help of um, maybe uh, one or two other animators. But th that one was uh, w was almost entirely his project. Um, and it depicts the, you know, just a figure pushing a boulder up a hill, but in a very evocative way. And then, of course, it has the it has a sort of reveal at the end, you know, not to spoil anything is two minutes long, but that, you know, he's pushing a boulder up a mountain that is at the end revealed to be made of boulders. So the idea is like, you know, the mountain is made by this, by this tireless labor. Um, but then the other one, the struggle I thought was very interesting because the premise of that is that it's about a, uh, a sculptor who is chiseling away at a hunk of stone to make it into a sculpture but once the sculpture begins to take on human form, it lashes out and begins to sculpt the sculptor. So mm -hmm. it gets a chisel and starts hammering away like his hairline and stuff. And by the end, the sculptor himself has been chiseled down to a withered old man by the art that he's been working on. Yeah, it's such a simple concept, especially when you, you know, just sort of describe it. But it was it's 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 just brought to life so wonderfully. And you, you're watching it and you're like, yes, that's. This he's captured it. This is this is what uh, what art does to you. This is what work and life do to you. Yeah, you're you're crafting the um, uh, the thing, and the thing is also um, taking its chisel to you. Now, uh, Sisyphus was uh, was apparently also used, or part of it was used in a 2008 Super Bowl ad for GMC. <laughs> what? Um, yeah, yeah, does that make people want to buy cars? I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess GMC was making st like the statement that's like we're doing it. We're put maybe yeah. they didn't really understand the underlying myth all that well, um, and they just wanted something that would grab football fans' attention. Well, I want to be fair. I haven't seen how it's used in that ad, or if I have, I don't recall it. So maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe it makes sense in context. Maybe it does. Yes, um, but but he was no stranger to uh, advertisements as well because um, uh, he also made a uh, a promotionary animation for Air India. Um, which uh, is also included as an extra on this Blu-ray and is also very fascinating because you watch this eight or nine minute long uh, Air India commercial. It's sort of a commercial, but there's no, mm -hmm. there, there's no uh, voiceover uh, that's included in this cut of it anyway. Uh, it only occasionally do things resemble airplanes or spell out Air India. And the rest of the time is just kind of this free-forming animation of about sort of like travel in India and a little bit about flight. So there's a really interesting part of that, uh, that 30 minute interview on, on the Blu-ray where, uh, I think the interview there's, you can actually find it online. If you want to look it up, it's called, uh, it's called something like brighter colors or the colors are brighter or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, uh, and, and so it's worth a look, but he tells the story of how actually working on that air India commercial sort of inspired what I would say is the most defining artistic feature of son of the white mare, which is the, 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 the transforming quality that none of the forms in the movie are fixed that like the forms of the characters are always kind of changing the forms of the landscape and the props within it are always changing. Um, that in a way grows out of his experience working on this commercial for an airline. <laughs> so he says that, you know, he was, when he was younger, before he had had much success, uh, he, I think he had just been working on stuff like, you know, uh, the, the Gustav cartoons and stuff at this point. He was at Pannonia Studios and a man representing Air India, which had recently op- opened an office in Hungary, came in looking for a specific director or specific animator who worked at that studio and said, uh, you know, I want this guy to make a to make a commercial for for our airline. And the way Yankovic tells the story, I'm not quite clear whether how much deception was involved, but it sounds like maybe what happened is they came and got him and they were like, Hey, this, the guy that, uh, the guy that they want doesn't want to do this. Can you pretend to be him? <laughs> and, uh, and so Yankovic is like, sure, I'll do that. Or maybe, maybe it wasn't quite that deceptive, but there was some kind of switcheroo involved and he ended mm-hmm. up working on this commercial, uh, when this other guy had been requested, but he said, uh, he got uh, a number of directions from the, this representative from Air India about what he wanted in the animation. And the first thing the guy said that what he wanted more than anything else was that there should be constant transformation. Mm-hmm. And he says, this was a turning point for me. I mean, I would say constant transformation is the Yankovic style. Yeah, yeah. But he also said that his work for this Air India ad pr- inspired him in a way to pursue projects that were beautiful and full of emotions. Yeah, and so throughout his career, he he seems to have stuck mostly to his own projects and was, again, deeply involved in the study of mythology and folklore. Um, his uh, his one real foray into American cinema uh, comes from a perhaps unexpected place. Uh, he has an art department credit on Walt Disney's 2000 film, The Emperor's New Groove. Huh. Now, have you seen The Emperor's New Groove? Go. I don't think I have. Um, it's one, I don't think I've ever seen it in its entirety. I've seen parts of it. It's, uh, like a farcical, uh, Incan silly adventure kind of a thing. I think that's Oh, a, this is set in the Incan Empire. It's got a llama, I think. There's a llama and there's David Spade. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's got some, <laughs> got some good talent involved. Uh, I, I know that this is a film that many people grew up with and still find a lot of fun. And I, and I don't doubt that for a second. Uh, you know that it's it's uh, you know it's worthy of your fun, uh, but it does sound like this was a much different film earlier in its production. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was going to be called Kingdom of the Sun, and it was apparently going to be more steeped in Incan mythology. Uh, and then apparently this shifted when uh, the co-director left, and that was when uh, Yankovic also left the picture. Uh, but he still retains that credit. I was looking around for more information on this to see if there were like any surviving sketches that he had done or. Um, you know, I it, it almost makes me want to sit down and watch The Emperor's New Groove to try and pinpoint things in it that feel like at least an echo of his ideas and his work. You know, so I already mentioned that uh, that his work on that Air India commercial being influential in, in what would come later. But uh, in the interview, he also talks about a, an interesting 
I don't know whether he would cite this as an influence on him, but a lot of people have pointed out the similarities between uh, his earlier movie, Corncob Johnny or Janos Vitesh, and uh, Yellow Submarine. And mm. he talks about how there was a point where he was trying to secure funding for uh, Corncob Johnny. This was, uh, I guess, uh, he hadn't made a, a feature by himself yet. And uh, he had to do some storyboard presentations for a bunch of big wigs. I don't know who they were. I guess they're, you know, money people. And uh, he thinks that the success of Yellow Submarine really helped him break through on that uh, because he says, you know, before Yellow Submarine, uh, I don't know if this is fair, if anim you know, animation historians would think of it this way, but at least in his impression, there were basically two sides. He says there was the Hollywood style and that was by Disney and there was the New York based UPA style, which he says was closer to European animation. And then he says, I needed a third side and Yellow Submarine emerged. And that was sort of a good starting point for a, a, an alternative, a, a third side with which to approach animated features. Huh, that's that's interesting. I wish I could say more on it because I have to admit I've never actually watched Yellow Submarine uh, in oh! its entirety. I've only seen like you know clips. I know what the blue meanie looks like, that sort of thing, but I've Rob, never sat down and watched it. You would love Yellow Submarine. <laughs> you would. Yeah, I, I probably would. I know it was my um, uh, my father in law's uh, one of his favorite films, so I, sh I should definitely give it a viewing sometime. I'll let you borrow my copy. <laughs> okay. Oh, but there's one thing I wanted to come back to, uh, which is uh, he starts explaining this whole schema he has in mind for what Son of the White Mare is and what its relationship is to dreams, to fairy tales, and to uh, childhood bedtime. And uh, so I just want to read a, a, a longish quote from his interview that I think helps illuminate uh, some of the things we're going to talk about when we get into the the contents of the movie. Um, so he starts off again by saying, you know, that the movie was called psychedelic by people in the press. And again, he, he never tried psychedelic drugs, so he couldn't exactly speak to that. But he said that what he was going for was to recreate the feeling of dreams. So he says, quote, dreams play a crucial role. The dreamlike quality of the score and the dreaminess of the voice acting is also important. Why was that important? It was important because based on what I know, my interpretation, and based on their prevailing roots, I say that tales should be told at bedtime. So when a child is going to bed and approaches the nighttime darkness, even as an adult, I know that every bad night keeps haunting me. Even when I can't sleep, I only have bad thoughts. That's what dreams try to ease. So at night, children are normally asleep, not awake, and dreams help them through the difficult parts of the night. That's what we have to feed with a positive story and a happy ending. What is the happy ending? I wake up and the sun is shining. And so from there, he goes on to explain how uh, it was important to him that the voice acting in the movie have the soothing quality of uh, a mom or a grandma or a dad or a grandpa telling a tale to a child at bedtime. I think that that absolutely comes across in the, especially the voice of sort of the godlike figure in the movie mm -hmm. when it speaks. It is deep and soft and reassuring, uh, even when it's delivering bad news. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he later goes on to talk about how there there was an interview he did in the 90s uh, to, I believe, a, a Hungarian newspaper. And um, when he was talking to the photographer who came along for the interview, he said that uh, the, the photographer says, uh, my, my son told – well, he, first of all, he says, you know, my son, he loves Son of the White Mare. But then he said, my son says his dreams are like this. <laughs> oh, wow. 
And I don't know if that means that the movie captured what his dreams were already like, or if the movie had influenced the way that he dreamed, like what his vision for dreams was, but uh, I don't know. And uh, anyway, um, Yankovic goes on to say that uh, it's a, it's a true acknowledgement of an artist's intentions uh, to, to have a child say that this is what my dreams are. Yeah, I can imagine. So, um, Ooh, man, uh, it's so much to, to unpack there. Like he, he kind of has his own uh, like theory of, of why we dream and what purpose dreams uh, play uh, in our lives, um, uh, as well as advice on what kind of what sort of stories should be you should be reading to your child at night. I feel like maybe, maybe I'm doing it slightly wrong right now because we're oh, reading no. Japanese ghost stories at night. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but um, uh, but no no I I, I do very much uh, like his uh, his take on this and. Uh, and in terms of dreams being like this film, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted. My gut reaction is I don't feel like my dreams are ever this beautiful mm-hmm. uh, and the you know and, and this visual. But on the other hand, I do feel like the logic of dreams is very much, and the narrative, such as it is, of dreams uh, is is very much like the visual representation of this film. That things shift, take on different forms, merge together in ways that seem novel and symbolic and then can easily disengage and become something else again and we don't question why that's happening that, that's a very good point i see that parallel entirely uh one last funny tidbit from this interview i wanted to share he says that uh when his mother saw son of the white mare she said to him son you'll never make another film that's as good as this one <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Uh, this Combining the compliment with pure discouragement. That's great. <laughs> You've done it. You've made the best film you can possibly make. <laughs> it's over for you. <laughs> mm. Well, it, it is a great film. Uh, and and I, haven't, I haven't seen any of his uh, work uh, that, that he did after this. Uh, but uh, I've heard good things. Uh, the guys at Videodrome were, uh, were encouraging me to, to try these other films of his. But I already had my heart set on The White Mare. And I knew from the you know from some of the visuals that it had to be the white mare it had to be son of the white mare uh these other films were not going to be the appropriate first uh viewing experience oh yeah i mean whatever good qualities his other works might have i think uh, at least in terms of features if you exclude the shorts it is agreed by probably both him and by his audiences that son of the white mare is is the masterpiece that's the one don't start with Gustav, uh, which <laughs> while we were talking, I glanced at it and it, it has kind of a Mr. Magoo kind of look. If you're curious yeah. what it, it is like, it's that style of animation. Gustav is the, the misadventures of a grump with a peanut head. <laughs> All right. Just a, a few other people I want to... Uh, credit here uh, for being involved in the film. And I also want to go ahead and apologize for any, uh, in fact, all butchering of the Hungarian language and Hungarian names here, but I'm going to do my best. Um, First of all, the co-writer on this was uh, Laszlo Giorgi, who lived uh, 1923 through 1986, primarily an actor. This is their only writing credit, uh, at least according to IMDb. Hmm. Now, as far as the cast goes, again, we have to to drive home that the, the, the vocal performances in this all in Hungarian, are beautiful, and everyone does a great job. Uh, but most of these names are not going to really be that familiar to anyone outside of uh, Hungarian cinema, or you know, outside of, apart from anyone who's familiar with Hungarian cinema. But uh, one of the individuals credited is Georgi Serhaimi, who was born in 1948, 
uh, does a few of the different voices in this, including uh, Tree uh, Shaker, our, our, our primary character, our hero. This guy seems to be a pretty big name in uh, Hungarian cinema based on just some of the credits I was seeing. Uh, he was in the 1981 German film Mephisto by um, uh, Istvan Zabo, and this film won a Best Foreign Language Oscar. So, mm. uh, you know, uh, uh, it sounds like, uh, like he's somebody of note, and I'd be interested to hear from anyone who has certainly more experience with Hungarian cinema than I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in terms of of music, uh, there's not a credit on this picture for for music or score, but there there are two credits for sound engineer, and I'm assuming these are the two individuals that we uh, we should thank for this film's otherworldly sonic landscape, which again is this wonderful combination of kind of I mean it's almost hard to describe because it's not very um, you know, it's it's not a tune you're going to find yourself humming, but it yeah. is has this kind of electronic pulsation, but without at times feeling very electronic, but other times just feeling very ethereal. Actually, one of the things he talks about in that interview is the difficulty of synchronizing music with animation, which I'm sure is uh, is a nightmare. Probably, I I, mm-hmm. I can't even begin to imagine. There's like one part where he's talking about having to divide the film into into half second blocks that you would try to match with the like the number of frames that would be on the screen and how much time would elapse in the musical composition oh i don't know it's hard to like when you watch the final product it's it's so ethereal and artistic and beautiful but so much like brute crunching grinding work (laughs) tedious work of that kind had to go into it to make it make the beautiful product we got in the end these are the real stone crumblers right here yeah Yes, and the two accredited individuals are, uh, and again, apologies for butchering these names at all, but uh, Matias uh, Scali and Bella Sinbenye. Okay, well, here's the part of the episode where, in, in a lot of cases, we would sort of break down the plot in more detail, you know, kind of go through sequentially and talk about things that caught our interest. Um, this movie, you can't really break down the plot in a lot of detail because uh, the plot is very high level. I mean, it's sort of at the level of a fairy tale, and a lot of the moment-to-moment happenings on screen are sort of abstract artistic changes and uh, and and just visual representations of emotions flowing out of the characters or out of the scene. Uh, doesn't make for a very good verbal summary on a podcast, but – I think we can at least talk some about the the characters and the players in the film and and what struck us about them. Yeah. So first of all, the film is titled Son of the White Mare. Uh, well, the main character we should mention first is the White Mare. This is the main character's mother. She is this um, this sort of cosmic horse, this beautiful white mare. And um, I, I I did some brief reading about. Um, you know some of the the mythologies and belief systems of uh, uh, you know of, of kind of like the of the of, uh, the, of uh, this part of, uh, of of European culture, and apparently you do see uh, bits of this in various customs. Uh, you know this idea of some sort of a of a of a, of a primeval horse that has some sort of relationship with uh, heroic figures and gods. Yeah, so you see this horse giving birth to this little creature that is at first sort of shaped like a horse, but then there is this quality of humanity 
in the little horse, in the like the mm-hmm. what do you call a baby horse? A foal is in yes. the foal, mm-hmm. I think. And something like like a human form somehow kind of erupts out of the foal, like it it pulses out and then eventually just seizes the form entirely. I'm not sure what that was supposed to represent, but uh, but it's it's a wonderful sequence. Yeah, yeah, and this this hero we're we're told is the third uh, offspring of the white mare, and this is our hero Tree Shaker, who uh, as a child is just this kind of adorable little blonde-haired boy that has this kind of loincloth or diaper that I think she gives him made from her own uh, mane. Uh, uh, but he will grow up in time to become this this flame-headed hero who is all summer and daylight, all passion and courage, uh, tremendously strong and a great wrestler of men and monsters. He seems to represent, again, both summer and just just bright daylight. He is uh, he's the, 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 the culmination of those ideas. He has a yellow-golden color scheme. And uh, as an, in his adult form, he's got this big, uh, like, <laughs> what would you call it? is almost a, a flame shaped hairdo kind of like the mm-hmm. thundercats or like a troll doll <laughs> i had you know i didn't think about thundercats until you mentioned it but yes it is very thundercats it makes me wonder if they were inspired by it, you know because yeah uh, uh, I, I forget which uh who all was involved in thundercats if those were those uh set of japanese uh animation I, studio I or not but I wonder if within the animation world, like these influences, uh, you know, were, were already in place at that point. Yeah, I, I don't really know anything about Thundercats. Um, but, 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 hey, we should mention the other two brothers. Yes, they, uh, th- neither are as impressive as Tree Shaker. Like, <laughs> Tree Shaker is the main show here. Uh, uh-huh. He has all the gifts. Uh, meanwhile, Stone Crumbler is mostly this bumbling brother who represents, I think, the morning. Uh, he can crumble stone, but he isn't really good at anything else. He's mostly there for kind of uh, comedic fodder. Yeah, he's the comic relief, I would say. He, and he's got a funny voice and a mustache. Mm-hmm, he looks yeah. a little bit like Mario. Yeah, yeah. And he has big, like he has big shaggy pants, right? Like they're made yes. out of uh, wool or something. Yeah, he's got big pants and thick legs. And that actually reminds me of uh, one of the things that's interesting about Corncob Johnny. I don't know if you saw depictions of the the main character in that, but he has a small head and big legs. <laughs> and uh, uh, Yankovic said, you know, some people kind of criticize that. They're like, oh, why is his head so small here? Why are his legs so big? Why are his feet so big? But he had a good explanation for that. He was like, well, you know, it's it's almost like perspective. Like this character is larger than life. So when you look at him, it's like he's – even though he's sort of scaled to the other characters, the fact that his legs are huge and his upper body is smaller, it's like you're looking up at a figure that is vanishing into the clouds as, you know, like the perspective is taking the upper parts of his body uh, to a vanishing point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's very good. You know, the big, the big cuffs on the ankles, it kind of works. It makes yeah. him look like a giant. That's true, yeah. And then the third brother is Iron Temperer. This is our kind of winter iron worker brother who I think has elements of like nighttime to him. He's he has this uh this colder uh spirit. Blue, you know, he's, yeah. He's, yeah, he's blue. He's 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 far more serious, but also gets criticized by Tree Shaker for not doing a, a good job on things. 
Uh, there are there are sequential scenes where both Stone Crumbler and Iron Temperer get brutally spanked by their other brothers when they uh, fail to cook a porridge and weave a rope correctly during a daytime. Uh, right. It's, and to protect that porridge from the next character we should mention, um, who we alluded to earlier, this is the gnome. The uh, I believe they refer to him in the, 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 the translation as the seven-colored gnome. Yes, he appears... When the brothers are – so they're looking for a hole that will provide an entrance to the underworld because they've been given a quest where they know that there are three princesses who are imprisoned in the underworld where they're, they're kept prisoner by these three horrible dragons. And so they're looking for a hole where they can get down into the underworld. And while they're looking for a hole, uh, each day two brothers go out and the other one stays home to cook a porridge and weave a rope. And uh, every day this gnome shows up and he's like, hey, that looks like some pretty good porridge. Can I eat it all? And when the brother says no, the gnome uh, overpowers them with his with his he has a tentacle like beard. It's like a beard Mm -hmm. that can sort of grab you and change into anything. And so he'll overpower them with his tentacle magic beard and then uh, put the burning hot pot of porridge on their belly and then eat it and then force the brother to eat a bunch more porridge and give them a belly ache. <laughs> yes. So it's a little strange, but yeah. Yeah. The the other strange thing about this gnome, and this is technically a spoiler, but nothing I can really say can spoil this movie for you. Um, if we later on find out that the gnome who is depicted as having one eye mm-hmm. uh, is seems to be like a shard of or the remnants of the forefather, the uh, the primordial sort of um, uh, deity uh, that is alluded to earlier and that is ultimately restored at the end of the picture. Yeah. Oh, but so the gnome gets the better of the other two brothers. But when Tree Shaker finally encounters him, uh, Tree Shaker, of course, you know, he can't be beaten. So he gets mm-hmm. the gnome's beard, he cuts it off, and he turns <laughs> the beard into a sword. Yes. Yes, this sword uh, that uh, that, that then comes in play in the battles to come. All right, so let's... So we have the three princesses and the three dragons. Uh, I wonder if we should talk about the three princesses first or or talk about the pairings, like the princess and the dragon. Oh, yeah, we, we can talk about the pairings. Okay. Okay, so the again, like all three brothers seem to like they seem to be tied with a different with a certain season and a different time of day, and the same goes for the princesses. Uh, you know, we have our night princess, we have our morning princess, and we have our day and summer princess. Um, and then the the dragons themselves have sort of different themes going on. We'll we'll discuss here, but the the first princess that uh, he attempts to save, and he meets her before he encounters the dragon, is this night princess who. Uh, is certainly the most seductive of the three, like very a very sensual depiction. Um, mm. She is often depicted topless or and or nude or nearly nude, um, and she also has kind of a, a sneakiness to her, a kind of selfishness to her. Yeah, she seems tricky in a way that the other two princesses are not. Mm-hmm. And then the dragon uh, that is guarding her, that has kidnapped her. Uh, that is protecting her and that um, that uh, the tree shaker must defeat is the three headed dragon, which 
again, put aside any any like vision in your head of what this dragon should look like, because what we're talking about here is kind of this rock and jewel eating monolith, this kind of golem with three heads and uh, prominent testicles dangling uh, uh, between its legs. It's like a stone brute with uh, vaguely Mesoamerican design elements in the way it's depicted. It seems to represent kind of like mining and consumption of natural resources like it's very hungry it just wants to eat a bunch of gems and rocks yes there is a uh, there was some interview i came across where yankovic described the idea he had for the three different dragons in that the the three dragons sort of uh, represented the darker elements of human industry in three different stages so mm. the first dragon the three-headed dragon is uh, is somehow like mining and uh, and the dark parts of human industry going back to the stone age and then the next dragon we're going to talk about uh, is is more the present and then the third dragon is the future yes so obviously he's going to defeat all these dragons. So then uh, we don't really have to describe the battles all that much. I guess we can a little bit as, as it comes up. But basically, you know what's going to happen. They're going to wrestle. Uh, Tree Shaker is going to win. And then he's going to move on to the next, saving the next princess, defeating the next dragon. The next princess is the morning princess. And she's she's good mannered. She's, she's not like her, her sneaky sister. But she also seems very anxious. Um, and the dragon that is uh, guarding her is this seven-headed dragon, and and this guy is just a tank-like juggernaut of just cannons and warfare. He is like a battleship, but with treads. Yes, like a tank, a land battleship. Yeah, and it's you know watching this this film, it's you, it's enough of a of a head shaker when you encounter that first dragon. It's like oh, this is nothing like a dragon. This is not what I expected, but it's marvelous and it's it's so inventive and creative. And then. The, yeah, the, the dragon, the next dragon to come along, the seven-headed dragon, is just a, a completely different beast. But I think the third dragon is maybe even the most interesting of the three. I don't know about visually, because they all look beautiful, but it's the most conceptually interesting because it doesn't even have the form of something you you normally think of as able to attack you. So the first has like legs and arms. It's like a mm-hmm. it's three-headed monster, but made of stone. The second one is at least a vehicle. It's a, you know, an armored vehicle attacking you with guns and rolling ahead on treads. The third dragon, known as the 12 headed dragon, is a city. It's like a city oh. skyline made out of skyscrapers. Yeah. And there's this wonderful, it, when it's shifting forms, because again, everything in this, this film kind of shifts forms and is constantly transforming and pulsating. It has this pixelized quality to it, which feels like, yeah, it's, 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 it's the it's modernity in the future. It is not only the idea of the city, but it's also uh, like digital technology. You yeah. know, it's it's pixelization. Yeah, the, at some point, the lights in the skyscrapers uh, that form the heads of the dragon start sort of like beeping in patterns that look more like uh, when you watch sci-fi movies from the mid 20th century, you'll see like button panels where all the buttons Mm -hmm. are lighting up in different ways. I think it was trying to evoke that. Yeah. So, so each dragon more wondrous than the last. Um, And I guess to a certain extent, the, 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 uh, the princesses as well, Uh, uh, because the third princess is the summertime princess. And she's clearly the one, like the second that uh, Tree Shaker sees her, there's this marvelous scene where they clearly fall in love with this. It's like their eyeballs have each other's heads in them and it's marvelous and hypnotic. Yeah, totally. She's depicted, I think, as, um, 
as like a brave and true like she she actually helps tree shaker defeat the mm-hmm. dragon like she helps him swing his sword yeah whereas the the first one is kind of conniving and kind of like well i guess i'll let you i'll help you or you know if we'll see what happens yeah the second one is too anxious and this one is actually brave and will help but in any case yeah each each of these challenges tree shaker is up for He's going to bury each of them up to their neck in the, uh, in, in the dirt via wrestling, and then he's going to cut their many heads off with his magical sword. Oh, and then one thing I love about it is, uh, this is true of a lot of great uh, old myths, it doesn't end with the battle with the, like, the last boss, you know, the, mm-hmm. the last enemy. There's an epilogue where you've got to find a way to return to the mundane world, to get out of the underworld. And he does this by, uh, by conferring with a griffin who, who needs him to get some stuff before he can take him to the upworld. And uh, I think it was 12 oxen and 12 barrels of wine. Yes, yeah, that was the bribe, uh, and he has to constantly feed the griffin these things as they uh, ascend out of the underworld. And towards the end, I believe he accidentally eats one of um, Tree Shaker's legs. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he's like, oh, if I knew you tasted so good, I would have just eaten you outright. But uh, uh, in, uh, instead, I'm going to repair your leg, and then he does so. He uses, like, griffin magic to stitch his leg pieces back together after puking them up. Yeah. Yeah, the griffin is tremendous, and uh, it, it has this kind of uh, Star Drake quality to it. You know, it's a very cosmic-looking entity that uh, that actually feels more like a you know a, what the, the popular conception of a dragon. Uh, uh, you know, it, it looks more like that than uh, than any of the the villainous dragons in the film. One thing I thought was interesting about the griffin was that it in a way kind of lacks a texture that most of the other characters had and looks more like the, the simple two dimensional way that griffins or, or other creatures would be depicted on heraldry. And I wonder yeah, if that was on purpose. I feel like there's, there's nothing in this film visually and symbolically that isn't on purpose. You know, this is one of those films where, where every, everything that happens, you 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 feel like there's, there's a reason here. There's a, there's a message here. And maybe I can understand it, maybe I can't. You know, I have to say, there, there's a lot of what I guess you might call sort of psychosexual imagery in the picture. Um, not in a way that, that generally feels obnoxious or anything, uh, but, but it's, it's certainly there. Uh, you know, well, in, in the way that it's there in a lot of myths. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, how do you tease the two apart? How do you, yeah. you know, present mythology that is accurate to the myth without having these themes? And so those themes are very, very uh, apparent in this film as well. Though, though I want to stress, like, it's not the kind of film that I would, I would hesitate to show to my, my uh, nine-year-old. Uh, in fact, I, I invited him to watch uh, part of this with me, and he... I think he ended up going and doing something else. He was like, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll try it again on him another time when he's, uh, he's you know, ready to sit down and watch something. But, um, uh, uh, but you know, I guess with, with all films like this, you know, check it out. Go to IMDb and, uh, and look at the, uh, the, the parental advice uh, to see if it is uh, what you're comfortable with showing your, your, your young ones. Um, but uh, but I, I feel like, like everything is, is pretty well managed in this film. As long as you're okay with, you know, nude cartoons at times and repeated hilarious spanking scenes yes i guess it's mainly for concerned parents it would be the spankings the breasts and the the pendulous testicles of the first dragon oh yeah um though there is a lot of phallic imagery with the sword of uh, of tree shaker that yeah. uh, again like any kind of symbolism in this is seems very intentional while I'm at it, I will go ahead and just mention that the parental advice uh, that is user-generated on IMDb 
is one of my favorite things these days. And oh, yeah. first of all, because it's useful. Anytime we're about to cover a film in Weird House, I go and see what's there. Because generally, if unless it's a film that's super obscure, I can get a, um, a heads up on any yeah. problematic material that's going to be in the film. But also, I just I love the user generated comments because sometimes it's very much. You know, it's it's very straightforward. Like, well, there's certain amount of nudity in this. There's this kind of violence, and there's this kind of other stuff. Uh, other times, it's something like there is implied nudity in this scene, which <laughs> which I'm not even sure needed to be called out. Um, you know, but uh, but but I, I love reading that stuff. I like the ones where it's like there is a picture of a tobacco pipe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is implied that someone smokes it. Yes. Uh, it uh, it is implied that this character went toilet at some point. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. There's a lot of good UTC out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, I loved Son of the White Mare. I, I did as I'm well. Already recommending it to friends of mine. I, I wonder though uh, if you have any thoughts on this. What we're to make of the film's final image, uh, that of Tree Shaker, gigantic walking through a landscape of modern buildings, uh, you know, like, like mm. it's a forest. Uh, because uh, I'm again reminded of the themes of time and myth and modernity in this film. And I'm wondering, is, is, this, is this the filmmaker trying to, you know, create a sense of balance of like the modern world and the mythic world sort of coexisting? Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think I had an opinion on that. It just sort of washed over me. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's stuck with me. I mean, a lot with this film is stuck with me. It, it certainly reminds me of that quote from him about you know about the idea of of the the, the important films are the ones that you think about the next day, you're thinking about later, yeah. that they're they're resonating in your mind. And I feel like this one this one resonates. Uh, I oh, highly yeah. recommend this to our, our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Well, coming back to that quote, I mean, th- that is something that I don't think I'd ever put into words like that before. Uh, but it, it, there is clearly a distinction in different types of movie experiences. Like I can go see a movie and I walk out of the theater and, well, that was cool. And then I don't really think about it again. Mm-hmm. And, there, and then there are the ones that put you in a different state of mind. And you are like the words he uses are you are under the influence of the film after you're walking around out, outside the theater. Um, and uh, yeah, there are definitely movies like that. This is one of them. And, and I do love that quality. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about Weird House Cinema selections, like Spookies is not a film that I, I think about a lot, you know? It didn't, it doesn't really inspire a lot of deep contemplation. But then other films, like Psychomania, I probably think about Psychomania every, every couple of days. Right. <laughs> How can you not? Yeah. All right, well, some of you out there may, may be saying, well, okay, I'm, I'm on board. I want to see Son of the White Mare. How can I see it? Well, uh, speaking at least to, to U.S. audiences here, uh, the 2021 Blu-ray, again, is tremendous. It's a new 4K restoration. Uh, this comes from original camera negatives uh, that were supplied by the Hungarian National Film Institute Film Archive uh, in collaboration with uh, Arbolos. Uh, highly recommend picking that up. We rented it from Atlanta's own Videodrome. Uh, so if you are in Atlanta, you can go to Videodrome and rent it. <laughs> Uh, we recommend that. Uh, but also, you have a streaming option. Uh, you can stream it on the Criterion channel, uh, which is is pretty great in and of itself. I mean, it's the Criterion collection, so you know what kind of caliber of film you're going to encounter there. Uh, but if you want to, if you want to be a little cheap, uh, you can do uh, what I initially did. You can you can sign up. You can get that free trial of your Criterion channel. Watch Son of the White Mare, and then you can decide if you want to stick around for the rest of what they have to offer, which of course is a lot. 
I was going to say it's a good movie to watch if you're trying to convince yourself not to shave your beard. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to be this weakling gnome who uh, is just stuck in the underworld. All right, we're going to go ahead and close it out then. Uh, But if you want to listen to other episodes of Weird House Cinema, it publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We are primarily a science and culture podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Fridays, that's our time to set aside most serious matters and just discuss a weird film. We also have listener mail on Monday and a short form episode on Wednesdays. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 